The Supreme Court finished its October session with arguments about Puerto Rico's historic debt crisis and the fate of the notorious D.C. sniper who terrorized the capital region in 2002. This is The Term by Law360. It's a weekly podcast to keep you up to speed about the nation's top bench and the justices who preside there. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for our newswire here in Washington. Joining me from our New York studio is co-host and Law360 editor-at-large Natalie Rodriguez. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, Jimmy. Good to be back uh, and talking about the Supreme Court again. Although, I have to be honest, it feels like we were just here. Yeah, we were just here. It was a super short week, only two days of oral arguments, and now the October session is over. So, But it was an interesting one. I mean, there were some big cases. Yeah, despite the Monday holiday, um, you know, the court had a pretty packed schedule. It dedicated Tuesday to arguments in about five consolidated cases that all basically question whether Puerto Rico's bankruptcy board is constitutional. Right. Just a kind of a minor question there <laughs> about whether the entity overseeing this $125 billion debt crisis is, you know, exactly. allowed to exist. Historic, yeah. historic proceedings, basically. Yeah. Um, and then on Wednesday, there were three arguments that took the justices past lunch. Uh, we'll be digging into one of those, the so-called D.C. sniper case, uh, which questions whether the younger of the two shooters life sentence was constitutional. Well, why don't you set up the first one for us on these five consolidated cases that were argued on Tuesday after the Columbus Day holiday. This was a, a pretty significant one, as I alluded to earlier, but it's uh, there's kind of an easy, straightforward question at the center of it, right? Uh, well, it seems like it is on paper. <laughs> uh, so the headline case is Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico versus Aurelius Investment. Um, and, you know, the straightforward question is whether... The board members were properly appointed um, or whether their appointment violates the Constitution's appointments clause, um, whether they're officers of the U.S. or part of Puerto Rico's territorial government. And, and that essentially means that they should be confirmed by the Senate, right, as opposed to just named by the president. Exactly. You know, and, and, and so this board um, has such significant power. They are basically Puerto Rico's voice in overseeing $125 billion of debt, um, you know, and when there's that kind of money, there are some unhappy parties. <laughs> so there's <laughs> hedge funds and workers unions who are fighting over, you know, some of the decisions that this board has made, um, and they're fighting over who gets to decide and who gets to have the money, basically. Yeah. They don't like this board, and so they say that, um, you know, it's unconstitutional, essentially. Exactly. You know, and yeah. but then there's, you know, you get past that clear-cut question, and then you get into the tricky, well, what happens if it is unconstitutional, <laughs> right? Uh, so the first That's always the case, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> so the First Circuit actually um, agreed that it was unconstitutional. You know, they should have been uh, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, but they kind of shrugged their shoulders and were like, well, yeah, but can't do much about it. Uh, you know, we're three years in. It's $125 billion worth of debt and like some 165,000 claims. You know, it's a complicated bankruptcy process. Better to just keep going forward as, you know, kind of de facto officers. But there's still like a ton of uncertainty that that ruling caused and so the board of you know the financial uh, oversight board it, it's appealing it's a it's appealed to the supreme court and that's what the 
you know, um, a Tuesday's arguments were all about. Yes. Right? So that brought us yeah. to Tuesday. Um, and, you know, with such a kind of complicated and historic proceeding, there were some heavy hitters in this case. Uh, Donald Varelli of Munger Tolls uh, represented the board and Ted Olson of Gibson Dunn uh, argued for the creditors. Yeah, a couple of former U.S. solicitor generals who, you know, can command a, a decent attorney's fees when they're uh, appearing before the Supreme Court. So that should tell you a lot about who's involved in this case. Yeah, uh, needless to say, I think the, the, the money signs are racking up in this case in all sorts <laughs> of different ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but getting back to, you know, so, you know, this board was appointed in 2016 um, and Varelli you know, his argument for the board um, is that it's not unconstitutional because of another clause in the Constitution, uh, Article 4, which basically uh, tells, says that the U.S. government can basically restructure territorial government. And that, that's okay. You know, it's not necessarily, you know, telling the the, the the territory what to do. It's just restructuring what its government is. Yeah, it's essentially it's a it's part of the territory, right? I mean, the Congress nestled this agency within the Puerto Rican government, and it is essentially exercising functions that would otherwise be exercised by Puerto Rico, namely acting on its behalf in a huge, enormous um, debt restructuring process. Exactly, and you know, there's about you know over a century's worth of precedents from the Supreme Court that really backs verbally on on this argument. Um, but, you know, the justices, uh, they weren't so so sure about it when you get down to kind of the nitty gritty. Um, you know, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she she was questioning really how how different it is um, from, say, like a U.S. attorney, you know, because these board members, they're really involved in all aspects of this bankruptcy and in stabilizing the the Puerto Rico government and you know there's there's some links though to to the US government and I know there's in like an Amici brief there were some allegations that you know they're they're kind of having because they do report to the federal government that they're also kind of taking marching orders from the right. federal government and and there there's like these huge questions about sovereignty um you know between uh, the US government and and then Puerto Rico's yeah, government. I think that's kind of a, a major uh, point of concern for Justice Sotomayor, who is the daughter of you know Puerto Rican parents, who kind of said at arguments like, you know, this is an entity that was created by Congress that has this enormous sway and power over the island's economy. It can veto laws. It can review the budget. Um, it's involved in the uh, you know the fiscal plan of how to get this island out of its crisis. And you know, no Puerto Rican voter ever voted for it. So. That the government is now arguing that these are actually territorial officers and not U.S. officers, officers of the United States. It's not really something that appeared to be sitting with her very well. It, it didn't. It didn't sit well, I think, with, with a lot of the justices. But then, you know, as, as arguments went on, you also get into then, well, if that's the case, then what next? Because, you know... Look, I, as full disclosure, as as Justice Sotomayor, I'm also from Puerto Rican heritage. You know, my mom's mm -hmm. Puerto Rican, and I have family um, on the islands. But a lot of my family's on the mainland now, and I, you know, there's been a big exodus from from the islands, and uh, you know, a large po portion of the population is on the mainland. And you know, so these claims about you know who's getting money, who's being owed money, you know, it, it's so intermingled and intertwined with the mainland, and then. 
it's three years in. <laughs> you know, how do you hit reset on everything? I know no one's ever going to be completely happy with the, with the proceedings, right? Um, I think that was kind of the argument that uh, Ted Olson was kind of pressing here was that, you know, I mean, this is a historic, I think the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history and the insolvency of a U.S. territory is de facto, uh, you know, a national issue with national implications. And so it affects everyone. I mean, there's a ton of creditors and bondholders and financial institutions in the mainland of the United States that are so wrapped up in this thing um, that it's really kind of a stretch to say that this only applies to the territories. But alas, I think you're right that, I mean, the question of where to go now that it's, you know, 2019 and um, <laughs> this board is knee deep in, 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 in the debt restructuring process, it really raises a lot of questions. Yeah, and I, you know, I think Chief Justice John Roberts really touched on on this issue quite well. You know, he was like, he said, I quote, I think it's very artificial to look at this and say, is this local or is this national? It obviously is some of each, or even the local aspects certainly have national implications, end quote. Um, so this is not going to be an easy case for the justices uh, by any means. Um, you know, the, the, the government side uh, was arguing that, you know, if they do decide to say it's unconstitutional and also then decide to hit reset, there's going to be like just so much more litigation to come out afterwards right. in, yeah. and in any case. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Where this one has. Yeah, well, nobody ever accused the Supreme Court of taking the easy cases. <laughs> and uh, the next one we're going to be talking about is no different. This is uh, Mathena versus Malvo. It is the DC sniper case. And so, um, in a word, uh, it's about um, the uh, teenage sniper's uh, bid for a lesser sentence. He was sentenced to um, life in prison without the possibility of parole in 2004. And he's arguing essentially that uh, subsequent Supreme Court rulings on uh, juvenile sentencing issues um, have made that sentence unconstitutional. Yeah, I, I remember this case. I mean, I, I know so many years ago, but I remember it just being all over the headlines. And Jimmy, you, you were in that area, right? Yeah, not to not to date myself here in the opposite way, but I was in uh, Montgomery County Public Schools at the time, and it was a it was a lockdown for that entire month of, of October in, in you know in two thousand and two. This was you know just a year after nine eleven, and and people were really on edge about this um, sniper who was you know targeting people at at malls, at uh, you know at gas stations, outside of school. Um, it was a really scary time. Um, and like I said, it lasted for a, a significant amount of time until the, the, the two culprits were eventually found sleeping in their car at, at a rest stop um, one day. But, but just to kind of refresh the facts of the case, this is Lee Boyd Malvo. He was 17 at the time. And he was essentially you know, brainwashed by this 41-year-old man, John Allen Muhammad, who had taken him under his wing, been the father figure he never had. And he kind of really looped him into this disturbing plan to, you know, execute essentially um, a bunch of people across the region using this rifle, you know, out of the trunk of his retrofitted uh, Chevy Caprice. So, um, you know, Muhammad, if you'll recall, he's been executed um, in 2009. Obviously, he was an adult at the time of the killings. Uh, but Malvo, who, who was a minor, it, it, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in 2004 um, and ha has He's now in his 30s. He's uh, expressed remorse for the killings. Um, he says he feels tr tremendous guilt about it and says he was a kind of a vulnerable teen at the time who really looked up to this person uh, um, and was you know, included in his diabolical plans. But um, 
the legal argument for his new sentence, it's, it's a bit complicated, but it, it has to do with the Supreme Court's uh, juvenile sentencing decisions that have come out since he was sentenced in 2004. And if you remember, 2004, that was before the Supreme Court abolished even the death penalty for um, juvenile offenders. Yeah, so I mean, he, he's basically, you know, saying that, that there should be kind of that new precedent should be should be basically taken into account now, um, but but I thought his case was a, was a bit complicated because isn't he actually facing multiple life sentences? Yeah, that's right. So the Virginia case, the one that's being appealed before the Supreme Court, that was um, you know just that had to do with just some of the killings. I mean, he he had uh, you know executed people um, in in the all over the tri-state area, and so he's obviously facing um, a lot more, um, you know, uh, sentences and, and years in prison in, in those jurisdictions. So even if the Supreme Court agrees with him that he should, um, his bid for a, a new sentence, it's not clear that he'll ever, uh, you know, walk out of prison one day a, a free man. What what would be the implications, though, for others who, who might be facing, you know, who, who are juveniles and might be facing life sentences? Well, that kind of gets, strikes at what the heart of this case is about, and it's it's really about these two decisions, Miller versus Alabama and Montgomery versus Louisiana. So in the Miller case, the Supreme Court held that uh, it's unconstitutional for a state to essentially mandate that, um, you know, juvenile offenders for a certain crime have to serve life in prison prison. And in Montgomery, just a few years later, they extended that retroactively. So um, Malvo is saying, though, that those two decisions also created kind of more substantive rights of juvenile offenders. And those substantive rights are that, you know, only um, defendants who have found to be, or excuse me, not found, that's not the appropriate word, but only defendants who are permanently incorrigible um, can be sentenced to life without parole and that um, sentencing judges must consider youth when they're making these um, you know considerations at the sentencing phase so it's not in his it's it's a little bit complicated but in his words it's not just this whole procedural issue about whether it's discretionary or whether it was mandatory it's about the substance of it did the sentencing judge actually consider these factors and so that was the subject of debate at um, Wednesday's oral arguments. Where did the justice seem to lean? You know, it wasn't clear where the court was leaning, but there were some, you know, obviously signs from some members of the court who are more outspoken about these issues, like Justice Alito and Gorsuch. They really seem skeptical about Malvo's reading of these two decisions um, as having created this new substantive rule for, for juvenile defendants. Basically that um, the suggestion there is that Miller and, and Montgomery really only did one thing, or two things, I should say. They got rid of discretionary, or they got rid of mandatory life sentences for juvenile offenders, and they extended it backward. Um, they didn't create this new claim for um, people who were sentenced under discretionary systems, like the one in Virginia at the time, um, that you know the sentencing judge didn't adequately consider these factors. They say it's enough that the court had the option to... Um, you know, reduce the sentence. Well, what did some of the other members of the court think? Well, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Sotomayor um, really seem to share some of the same concerns about the application of Malvo's argument. So if there is indeed this new substantive requirement that judges must consider these things and um, 
not just that it's discretionary, but they actually have to consider them. You know, how does that look in, in, in the real world, especially in a case like Malvo's, where you know it was up to the judge's discretion to give them this opportunity? Um, so, you know, Sotomayor mentioned the fact that you know it's codified in federal law that judges have to consider a lot of things at sentencing, but they don't go through each one and say, you know, I considered this and I didn't consider this one. I mean, it's just it kind of accepted that judges follow the law and that they. Um, you know, uh, have taken into the totality of the circumstances here. But, uh, you know, Malibu's attorney, Danielle Spinelli, she said that, you know, even still, this case is just so far out there because of the fact that Malibu lived in, you know, a world, he was sentenced in a world in 2004 when, you know, the prosecutor at the time was actually advocating for the death sentence for him, which is, you know, since been abolished by Supreme Court precedent. So they were really living in you know, a binary world of whether or not Malvo would be executed or whether he would give life in prison. And so, you know, the idea that this judge was somehow giving the requisite consideration to his youth in uh, giving him a sentence less than life in prison without parole, it just doesn't hold a lot of water, Spinelli was saying. Um, You know, whether or not that argument um, is accepted by some of the court remains to be seen, but um, it it was fascinating, especially to see how Kavanaugh um, has been uh, acting, uh, was acting at um, oral arguments. He obviously sits in the seat that was vacated by Justice Kennedy, who was really a major swing vote and play in a lot of the court's recent um, rulings on uh, juvenile sentencing. And I suspect that uh, Kavanaugh could play that same role going forward. You know, I feel with both these cases, Puerto Rico and the D.C. Sniper case, the Malvo case, um, that, you know, the justices really face a hard task with separating the black letter of the law from the really sticky reality of both situations. I, I'll be honest, I don't envy the justices at all with, with these cases for their position. Yeah, absolutely. I think in both of them, they're recognizing that whatever they say, you know, could have a way larger spillover effects for, for the real world and, and real litigants on the ground. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, just how they pan out on, on both these, these cases. I, I think that's all the time we have, though. Jimmy, thanks so much. Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Topher Moore and Alex Alana. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.